Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. If you're a believer in Christ, you are subject, like all of us, to Satan's doubts. He will throw these doubts at you. Have you really believed the truth? There's so many bright people who don't see it this way. Listen, you need to arm yourself by knowing not only what you believe, but why you believe what you believe. Understanding what Peter is is going to tell us this morning, it's going to strengthen your faith. It's going to deepen your conviction about Jesus, about the gospel, because his arguments are really irrefutable. Peter's Pentecost sermon was far more than history. It was a Holy Spirit-powered defense of the faith that should strengthen our faith and our witnessing. Welcome. Today on Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve Kreloff will be continuing his series of messages about that great sermon that Peter delivered to a hostile crowd. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Verse by Verse is our way of presenting his expository Bible teaching to a larger audience. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2 now and get ready to discover more about how Peter's sermon can help us give a good answer to anyone who questions our faith in Jesus. Although most Jewish people today have very little understanding, or for that matter, interest in the Old Testament promises of a coming personal Messiah, that was not the case in earlier times. In the first few centuries following the death of Jesus, Jewish interest and expectations of a coming Messiah who would deliver them from their enemies was extremely high. In fact, their longing for such a liberator was so strong that the Jewish people often found themselves deceived into embracing false messiahs, men who claimed to be the Messiah, but who were nothing more than quacks and messianic frauds. In his book entitled Exploring the World of the Jew, author John Phillips lists a number of these pseudo-messiahs. Some, I've got to tell you, I've read about them. They're strange. They're, They're colorful characters, to say the least. Some of them are absolutely crazy. But in spite of the craziness of some of these bizarre messianic imposters, many Jewish people wanting so badly to be saved, delivered from their enemies, put all reason aside and allowed themselves to be duped into believing the lies, blatant lies of these men. Well, this morning, as we continue our study of the book of Acts, specifically Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, we're going to see how Peter presents the case for the real Messiah, for Jesus of Nazareth. And far from appealing to the emotional longings of his Jewish audience to be delivered from their Roman oppressors, Peter appeals to them from their own scriptures. He rationally proves and and makes his case 
to them that Jesus is the true Messiah. And he does this for the purpose of showing them not only who Jesus is, but that they're guilty before God because they, along with the godless Roman authorities, he said, you crucified him. You're responsible. You're guilty. Now, the background of Peter's sermon is that in fulfillment of Christ's promise, the Holy Spirit had finally arrived on the Jewish feast day known as Pentecost. And his arrival was obvious because he came in the form of a loud-sounding, violent, rushing wind that filled the entire house where the 120 believers had gathered. And upon the Spirit's arrival, these believers were indwelt by the Spirit, they were empowered by the Spirit, and as a result, they started speaking in languages previously unknown to them. And when those in the city of Jerusalem who had heard this loud noise, when they initially gathered to the place where the disciples were staying in order to to find out what's going on, upon arriving, they they were startled. Because when they arrived, they heard all of these Galileans these Galilean Jewish people speaking in their own native foreign tongues. And their reaction to this was that some in the crowd mocked and said, this is nothing more than drunkenness. These Galileans are drunk. That's what you're hearing. But most of the multitude, and there were thousands of them, were just plain perplexed and confused. And they sincerely wanted to know the meaning of this incredible spectacle that they were hearing and seeing. And that's why we read what they, of what they said at the end of verse 12. They said, what does this mean? What does this mean? Now, it's in response to that very question, what does this mean, that Peter gets up and gives a sermon to explain what this means. He gets up as the spokesman for the apostles and the other 120 believers. He faces the crowd. He begins to explain to them in a sermon why they are hearing all of these Galilean Jews speaking fluently of the mighty deeds of God in their own mother tongues. And as we saw last week, the first thing Peter does in in a sermon is he addresses the foolish accusation made by those who mocked, saying that they were drunk. He simply refutes it by appealing to common sense. He says, it's only nine in the morning. Nine in the morning, everybody knows that people don't get intoxicated so early in the day. He says that in verse 15. So having dealt with the issue raised by the mockers, Peter then moves on to answer the question directly that was raised by the majority in the crowd. What does this mean? Explain this. And his answer is that what they were observing is the fulfillment of prophecy made hundreds of years earlier by Joel the prophet that in the last days God would pour forth his spirit upon all of his people. He said in verses 17 and 18, And it shall be in the last days, God says, I'll pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, I remind you that the words 
last days, that is a biblical term, and the Jewish people all understood this. It's a term that refers to when the Messiah arrives and begins his ministry of deliverance, of delivering them, of rescuing them. And it's a term, as I said, that all the Jewish people that day understood because they were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. That's a very familiar phrase. So in essence, what Peter is telling this crowd is that the Messiah has already come. He's arrived, and therefore the last days have begun. That's his message. And the proof of this, the proof of this is that the 120 Galilean Jewish people who are standing before you, they have been filled with the Spirit as Joel prophesied. God is pouring out his Spirit, and now they are declaring the mighty deeds of God in languages they have never studied. This is the outpouring of God's Spirit. Joel told us about this eight centuries earlier. Listen closely, though, because in addition to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the last days, this time period, Peter says, will come to a close. It'll come to a close with God's judgment on those who have rebelled against him. And Peter, continuing to quote the prophet Joel, speaks of this judgment. He calls it the day of the Lord. It's not a literal day. In this context, the day of the Lord is a time period when there will be wonders in the heavens, wonders on earth. It will be shortly before Christ comes back. Verses 19 and 20 say this, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Now, We do know, and we looked at this last week, that these words about wonders in the heavens and on earth, they they correspond to what we read in the book of Revelation about conditions that will take place during the seven-year tribulation period just prior to our Lord's second coming. So these signs, these wonders, they will precede the return of Jesus when he comes back to judge unbelievers and to establish his kingdom on earth. And this is why Peter closes with this portion of his sermon with other words from the prophet Joel about how to be saved from this coming judgment. Notice what he said in verse 21. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, this is where we stopped in our study last week with Peter stating that in light of, of God's judgment, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord to save them from this impending judgment, they will be saved. And so Peter has told his listeners that the last days have begun, meaning the messianic era has arrived because the Messiah has indeed arrived. And he has told them that if they call upon the name of the Lord, which implies faith in him, they'll be saved from God's approaching judgment. Now, I want you to understand this. Peter has intentionally brought his audience to this point in his sermon so that they are now ready to hear him identify who the Messiah is. The one who's coming has initiated the last days. And it's critical that they know who he is. Why? Because not only is he the true Messiah, but he is the Lord upon whom they must call if they are going to be saved. Therefore, starting with verse 22... Peter moves into the third point of his sermon, having first refuted the mockers and secondly explained the speaking in tongues. That's the evidence of the Spirit's outpouring in these last days. Peter is now going to present Jesus of Nazareth 
as the Messiah and Lord, the one who is ushered in these last days and the one they need to call upon to be saved from God's wrath. Watch this. More than just present Jesus as Messiah, Peter is going to prove to this Jewish audience consisting, listen, of many of the same people who only two months earlier had cried out for Jesus to be crucified, a hostile group. He's going to prove that the one they rejected and the one they murdered, he's the true Messiah and Lord, and therefore they stand guilty before God. See, Peter's sermon is really evangelistic in nature. He is not giving this to a church group. He's giving this to thousands of unsaved people. And his objective, therefore, is to bring this crowd of unbelieving Jewish people to the point where more than simply knowing the truth about Jesus, they also understand they are guilty in rejecting him. This is where Peter is headed in his sermon because he is concerned for the lost souls and desires them to be saved, of which when we finish this sermon, we'll see 3,000 of them will be saved. And so he now proceeds to make his case for Jesus being the Messiah. And he does this, folks, in a very logical, easy to understand way by presenting chronologically the four aspects of Christ's earthly ministry. Number one, his life. Number two, his death. That's what we'll look at this morning. Number three, his resurrection from the dead. And number four, his ascension back to heaven where he was exalted by God the Father. And the way Peter does all this is by using what all Jewish people of that day agreed upon was authoritative, the Old Testament scriptures. And he uses it to prove his point that Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is the Lord. Therefore, they need to be saved by calling upon him to save them. Now, Peter's sermon, I want you to know it should not be looked upon by us as simply ancient history, a history lesson. No, it shouldn't be looked upon as something that took place in the first century and has no personal application for us. If that's what you're thinking, you're mistaken. Because Peter's arguments in presenting Jesus as the Messiah, they're very relevant for us today, and I'll tell you why. For one thing, his arguments for how we can know that Jesus is the Messiah, it strengthens our faith. If you're a believer in Christ, you are subject, like all of us, to Satan's doubts. He will throw these doubts at you. Have you really believed the truth? There's so many bright people who don't see it this way. Listen, you need to arm yourself by knowing not only what you believe, but why you believe what you believe. Understanding what Peter is is going to tell us this morning, it's going to strengthen your faith. It's going to deepen your conviction about Jesus, about the gospel, because his arguments are really irrefutable. Secondly, Peter's arguments will aid you in witnessing to unbelievers because they will enable you to tell them not only who Jesus is, but why you believe in him. So pay close attention to how Peter uses the word of God to prove his point. And in doing this, Peter is once again, he has set an example for us by showing us how to obey the exhortation that he will later write in his first letter, 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you a reason to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. This is Peter's defense of the gospel. This will help you to defend the gospel. So this morning as we return to Peter's sermon, 
and we follow his progression of thought, the first thing we hear him telling his audience to prove that Jesus is the Messiah is a statement, just one verse, verse 22, a statement about Christ's life. Here's what he says. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Now I want you to notice something. Notice how Peter begins. He opens up this section of his sermon by calling upon his Jewish audience to listen to his words. And the significance of this is that this is very similar to what he said back in verse 14. When he began his sermon, he said, give heed to my words. So why is he saying this again? Listen to these words of mine. What's the significance of this? Why does he repeat himself? Weren't they listening before? Did he have to get their attention again? Now listen, what Peter is doing, he's letting the people know that he's moving on to speak of something else. He's sending them a signal that this is a transition. He's transitioning to make another point. He's changing his theme of his sermon. Having explained to them the meaning of the event of Pentecost, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Peter is now about to explain to them, watch this, how this outpouring took place. How it took place, meaning who's the one behind this outpouring? Who's the one pouring out the Holy Spirit? He told them what it was. Now he's going to tell them who it is who's behind this. And he begins by telling them, naturally, about Jesus, who he calls the Nazarene which simply means that Jesus was from the town, then a village, of Nazareth. It's in the Galilee region of Israel. And Peter describes Jesus of Nazareth as, he says, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed in your midst. Now, the key word in this statement about Jesus, note this, is the word attested. Attested. A man attested to you by God. It means, the word means to authenticate in the sense of proving something. And what Peter is saying is that God authenticated and he confirmed Jesus as the Messiah by all of the miracles, the signs, the wonders that he did through him. In other words, all the remarkable miracles that Jesus did during his earthly ministry, that was God proving over, with overwhelming evidence that Jesus was exactly who Jesus claimed to be. You see, when we think of the miracles of Jesus, often we think of his compassion, and certainly they did demonstrate God's mercy and compassion, especially the miracles of healing. Obviously, they show what a, a heart the Lord has for people. But there was a far deeper significance and purpose to his miracles than merely showing his compassion. They were visible demonstrations and verifications that God, God the Father, had sent him. And that he was who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Lord, God in human flesh. And although the Pharisees deliberately and out of prejudice, wicked and sin-hardened, unbelieving hearts, they accused Jesus of doing his miracles, they said, by the power of Satan, most people, most people of Christ's day who saw his miracles, they were far more objective and therefore they accurately understood them to be God demonstrating that Jesus of Nazareth was sent by him and he was indeed 
the Son of God. It would certainly appear that Nicodemus, the Jewish official who came to speak with Jesus at night, spoke for many people when he said in John chapter 3, verse 2, Rabbi, he said, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, this is how most people viewed and interpreted Christ's miracles, and that's the primary reason that Jesus did them. See, Jesus performed his miracles because the Old Testament, note this, the Old Testament taught that one of the identifying marks of the Messiah would be that when he came, he would do miracles. That is to say that the Jewish people would be able to recognize their own Messiah by his ability to perform these miracles. How else would they know who who he is? Let me show you something I think is very important. I think it'll give you some understanding. Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, we have this fascinating exchange between some of the disciples of John the Baptist and Jesus. We read in Matthew 11, starting in verse 2. Now, when John, speaking of John the Baptist, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Now, let me explain the setting. Setting is that John the Baptist has been placed in prison. He's in prison at this time, but while he's in prison, he keeps hearing something about Jesus. He keeps hearing about the miraculous works that Jesus is doing, meaning his miracles, casting out demons, healings, multiplying food to feed thousands of people. And he's troubled by this. He's troubled by it. He's bothered by this to the point where he wonders if he's made the biggest mistake in his life. He wonders if he's made a mistake in, in announcing to the nation of Israel that Jesus of Nazareth, his own cousin, is the promised Messiah. In other words, he's having second thoughts. He's having doubts as to whether Jesus is really the Messiah. So he sends two of his followers. Apparently, there was freedom for them to visit him in prison. He sends two of his followers to Jesus to ask if he indeed is the expected one, meaning, are you the Messiah, or should we be expecting someone else? Now, the question is this. Why is John entertaining this doubt about Jesus? After all, Jesus said of John the Baptist, he was the greatest man who had ever lived up to that point. This was a man of faith. This was a man who was filled with the Spirit even while he was in his mother's womb. This is a great man, great character. So why is John troubled about Christ's miracles? The reason is really simple. It's because John has misunderstood something. John has misinterpreted something. Back in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist had made a prediction that when the Messiah came, at this point when he said this, he didn't know who the Messiah was. He made a prediction that when the Messiah came, he would bring judgment upon unbelievers. Here's what he said in Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12. He said, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, meaning the Messiah, the Christ, he's mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, this last 
phrase that he's going to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It speaks of the judgment, the fires of judgment. So what John is saying is that when Messiah comes, he will bring judgment with him. And John has announced to everyone that Jesus is the Messiah, but Jesus hasn't brought judgment. Jesus hasn't brought the fires of judgment. Instead, all John hears in prison, it's not judgment. He hears that Jesus is going around doing good works, doing miracles, not the unquenchable fires of judgment. And folks, that's John's dilemma. We see something similar in Zechariah 9, where in verse 9, the prophet describes Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey. And in the very next verse, we see his second coming. The prophets didn't see that there would be at least 2,000 years between those two verses. And neither did John the Baptist. So when John sent his disciples to question Jesus, Jesus pointed out the signs that John had overlooked. Thanks for tuning in today to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff, the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Find out more about Lakeside at lakesidechapel.com or call 727-441-1714. That's 727-441-1714 or lakesidechapel.com. If you've been blessed listening to Verse by Verse and would like to help with the cost of airtime and other expenses, you can give over the phone by calling that number I just gave you, or you can visit the giving page at versebyverseradio.org for a convenient and secure way to give. And if you want to catch up on previous broadcasts, they're all in our message archive, which you'll find also at versebyverseradio.org. I'm Jerry Peterson. The Old Testament scriptures made it clear that the Messiah will rule the earth in a very real and present way. But they also made it clear that he would be a suffering servant who would reveal himself by giving sight to the blind, strength to the lame, and hearing to the deaf,